Boy, it's good to be with y'all this morning. We got a chilly one out there, don't we? It's like a little winter in the beginning of spring. Uh, but I'm excited to be in here with you guys. We're going to be uh, in God's Word together this morning. We'll be in Exodus, well, we're going to kind of be in Exodus 21 and 22 and a little bit of 23. All right, so that sounds like a lot. That's because it is a lot. And uh, what we're going to do is something a little different this morning. If you begin to turn there, normally we take a much smaller passage and we just work through it exegetically, trying to draw out what it is that God has for us in that message and apply it to our lives. We're going to do the same thing, but in a little bit broader stroke this morning. We're going to take uh, two and a half chapters and try to say, hey, from a uh, 30,000 foot view looking into this, because it's one chunk, it's one, it's called the Book of the Covenant, I'm going to show you that in a minute. In this chunk, what is preeminent? What, what, do we, um, what is being apl- given to Israel in that generation in that day? What does it teach us about God and how does it apply to us today? And I think there's some value in seeing it uh, as one uh, package as it is, as, as it was given to them. It was given to them kind of in one sitting um, as the book of the covenant. So I, I want us to see it. I think there's value either way. We probably could have done about a dozen sermons on points within this book. But I want you to see the, the, the big picture of the book of the covenant and what is uh, maybe, and hopefully I'm right in this, most foundational for us to understand out, out of these laws given to Israel in that day to apply the Ten Commandments. So before I jump into that text, let me uh, make one announcement. We have something called the Serve One campaign going on. If you haven't heard this or seen it in an email, uh, we really hope that all of our members would participate in this. It's just part of uh, serving one another in our body. We invite anyone that's visiting to participate in this, but we have a, a number of teams, probably upwards of uh, uh, close to 20 teams that that have volunteer roles on Sunday morning that just really allow us to meet with such a large group of people for corporate worship uh, without, you know, uh, with everything going so smoothly. And, and um, from the greeting to the offering uh, to the coffee to our prayer and ministry team uh, to the media team to Connection Central and, and, and to volunteer with the kids and students and the list goes on. And here's what we'd ask, especially for our members, we'd ask this of you. We invite you, if you're a visitor, to go ahead and jump in in this way. Uh, if you would serve one hour, in other words, the hour you're not worshiping, if you'd serve the other hour once a month. That would really help. So I understand that many of you are involved in that other hour in a Sunday school or in a discipleship community. Um, uh, that, that's, that's totally great. But e- even if you are involved somewhere in a class or place where you're receiving shepherding and community, that's great. But even then, could you take one of the four just because we need more folks serving in order to not uh, overwork those who are presently serving in our teams. So if you're going, well, okay, cool, I'm in. Just how do I find the right team? If you'll go to Connection Central afterwards or email damon at harvestmemphis.org if you're in a hurry. But we'd love to tell you specifically about what teams need help and maybe where your gifts would align with the team that you could serve once a month and the hour that you're not worshiping. So I'd love you to join us in that. Well, normally this is the point in our service where I stand at your feet to read God's word. But if we did that today, we would just read God's word and then break because it would take the entirety of our time. Uh, And maybe that would be the best thing we could do. What do y'all think? Well, I'll say a few words. I'll say a few words. Um, but I will, I will do this. I, I, I'm just going to pray and launch in. I'm not going to read the entirety of this two and a half chapters. Again, I'm going to kind of skip through and draw out what I think is the most important foundational thing that I hope Israel and that generation would see about God, but I sure hope we don't miss about the character and nature of God. I titled this message, what does it say? <laughs> Seeing the heart of God. Uh, I should have titled it The God of the Brokenhearted. Okay, if I had to redo it, it would be The God of the Brokenhearted because that's what we're going to see. <laughs> Thanks, Vincent. Let's pray. 
Father, we, we love you, and um, Lord, I, as we come to this text, uh, it's an ancient text. Um, thousands of years ago, you gave to Moses to give to the people applications of your Ten Commandments, that they might know what it looked like to be a holy nation set apart for your purposes that brought glory to your name amidst all the false gods of the world. How would the world know that you are different and that you are holy and you are just? And you gave them these laws that they were to apply as such. And here we are um, in a different day, um, uh, still as your people, but under the new covenant, the covenant of grace and, and Jesus Christ is our master. And Lord, our question today is not only um, what did these laws signify to Israel in that day, but what do they signify to us? Like how do, how do we carry forth uh, your heart and uh, the principles of the book of the covenant as they play out in the new covenant? As, as we hear the heart of Jesus reiterate and strengthen and deepen uh, those, uh, those laws that were given thousands of years ago to Israel, what they, how do they speak to us? How, how then shall we live in light of your word? Will you, will you give us illumination to know uh, how to do that, how we are to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, a priesthood of all believers that might be mediators that a lost world might know you through us? So give us insights today that we may see these things. Lord, I pray that I would decrease, I must, because you must increase. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay. So first thing, I keep calling this the book of the covenant. Why? If you just flip to your right real quick and you look in Exodus chapter 24, won't cover it today. We'll get there in a couple weeks or a few weeks, but chapter 24, if you just notice, um, verse 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. In our little chunk today, God's going to say, Moses, present these laws to the people. God already wrote down the Ten Commandments. That's the finger of God that etched those into stone. Now he's going to say to Moses, um, you give them these words. Can you tell them these words? And then in verse 7 of 24, he says, then he took, Moses, the book of the covenant. So he wrote these things down, called them the book of the covenant, and read them in the hearing of the people. And then they're going to kind of confirm, ratify the covenant at that time. So the reason I'm using this word is because that's what Moses called it. This is the book of the covenant. A few, a few things, just introductory, uh, is that the covenant is the idea that these, these are not human laws. These are laws that come from a divine source who is a transcendent God who entered covenant with his people. So that's why this is called the book of the covenant. Like Because of his covenant for us, his covenant love, which has rescued us, and his covenant that we are, we, if we obey him, we'll be his treasured possession. He's going to set us aside as a holy people of kingdom of priests. This covenant God has given us, here's the book of the covenant. Here's these laws that are written down. Again, separate from the Decalogue, separate from the Ten Commandments, which God himself spoke to them in a theophany, etched into stone. Now he says, Moses, you present them these laws. These laws are called the book of the covenant. The best way I can tell you what these laws are, they are applications of the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, there's 613 laws in the Old Testament given to people of Israel. They can sum all of them up in ten, the Ten Commandments, which can be summed up, as Christ said, and love God and love your neighbor. And even that's how Steve taught through the Ten Commandments, is these first four on how to love God, these next six on how to love your neighbor. So understand we can take all the law, it's all about loving God and loving your neighbor, specifically in the book of the covenant, it's going to be applications on what did loving your neighbor look like in that day for Israel. Okay, so they're going to get specific applications. If you were to just pick up your Bible and, and read in a quiet time, Exodus 21 through 23, which I'm sure most of you do consistently, then, then you, might, you, you might kind of say, hey, that, that's, a, that's a random smattering of laws and I'm not really even sure how to apply that. 
And, and, and a couple things on that. It, it might seem that way. It's not quite as random as you think if you understand in context. And certainly if you understand that it's not to be applied in your life the same way it was applied in Israel's. We're new covenant people. We're, we're under the covenant of grace and Christ is our head. And he has perfectly fulfilled all of the old covenant. And we're found in him. And, and, and now we live um, out the principles given in, in, uh, from the heart of God that are reiterated uh, in Christ and the apostles. There, there are uh, commands Christ gives us, but we also see the heart of God played forth in the heart of Jesus Christ, and we as a people saved by grace through faith are compelled uh, to magnify Christ and glorify God by living out his commands. And so we have a, a different motivation, so to say. Remember I talked about last week, the law has tutored us in our need for a savior. Christ has come, inaugurated his kingdom, and here we are as the people of God, as a covenant people. Uh, as a people who are a spiritual Israel. Difference in us in the Old Covenant now. Old Covenant, they all, Israel received the law, but not all Israel believed. Okay, in the New Covenant, uh, the New Israel, uh, all Israel, the, the, the only ones that are in the New Covenant are those who believe. That is your entrance into the covenant. It's by grace through faith. And so we are a people under the New Covenant who have been saved by grace. There, are, there ought to be a desire in our hearts that's, that's more visible, more obvious, more consistent than in this generation. Some, some in this generation were believers, some weren't. In the church of Jesus Christ, everyone's a believer. Or you're not, you're not a part of the church of Jesus Christ. You may go to the church, but you're not a part of the church unless you're saved by grace through faith and a believer. In which case, under grace is a better master. We're compelled towards obedience. Obedience to what? The heart of God that we see at work in Old and New Testament, which is incredibly consistent as God's character is consistent. And so I want to know what do we learn, not only about the laws that Israel was given, but what do we learn about the heart of God and how is that played out in our day among us as the, as the new covenant people? All right, so 21 verse 1. Oh, one more thing. One more, one more thought. Um, it's said in 24 that Moses wrote these things down. That's incredibly significant. Uh, because it was so different. The, the fact that God said, hey, write these things down. And Moses wrote them down as the book of the covenant. In that day, if you were, say, in Egypt, but really in any society, um, there was a king, there was a pharaoh, there was a dictator, there was an autocrat, there was someone in charge. And if you had a case that, that, uh, that, was, um, uh, that, that made it all the way into the king's court, basically that case was decided by your disgruntlement or whatever charge you brought against someone in the, in the court of the king. It was decided by the king according to uh, whatever he felt, whatever mood he was in. He could rule in your, in your favor or, or uh, in your favor one day, and then in the exact same parallel case the next day, he could rule the opposite direction. It was um, lex rex, which meant the king is law. Whatever the king says goes. He doesn't have to be consistent, doesn't have to be loving. No way does he have to provide equal protection for all citizens or any of those things that maybe seem normal or natural for us. No, the king is law. He does whatever he wants. God says, okay, Israel, here's the first way you're going to be different is uh, the law is going to be king. Moses is going to write these down, and you all are under the authority of the law. Like whatever the law says is equally and fairly applied to everybody. So immediately God's stepping back and saying, it's not going to be the whim of a leader, a good or God leader or an evil leader. It's not going to be Moses and whatever Moses thinks goes. Here's the way you are to apply the Ten Commandments in specifically your society and your generation. Okay, written down so that there can be protection for all. And the first thing we see coming right out the gate, chapter 21, verse 1. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. Everyone's to be able to see this. Provides equal um, uh, protection for all. When you buy a Hebrew slave, okay, 
So interesting place to start. Um, the Lord says, when you buy a slave. Now, this verse, among a few others, uh, later in the book of the covenant and Leviticus, have often been proof texted. If you've ever heard this verse, it probably wasn't in a sermon on the book of the covenant. It probably wasn't in context teaching you about God's heart uh, for those who are most likely to be exploited in their society. Probably not the way you heard this. You probably heard this as some uh, proof text that the Bible condones slavery. Okay, I uh, thought about doing a whole sermon on slavery, decided against it, so I don't want to hijack what I do believe the sermon needs to be and talk too long about this, but I do want to give you a little context on the idea of slavery, especially slavery in this day in the way that the text is speaking of it, uh, Near East slavery, versus what our minds immediately go to when we're thinking of uh, American colonial slavery, Okay, European colonial slavery, African slave trade. Like when, you, when we think slavery, we immediately read in our perception, our modern understanding into this text. I want, I want to just start by telling you it's two different things. Okay, it's important for you to understand this. By the way, by the way the, I, I need to say this to, to make sure I don't go too far with this. The Bible does not condemn slavery the way we all wish it did. Now, God, there's so many things that, Lord, help me to say this correctly, but it doesn't condemn it in a way of just saying, slavery is evil, it should never exist. Right, we'd love that to be a verse. We would all hear it. It doesn't say that. It doesn't either condone slavery to, uh, uh, to put it forth as any kind of a good or useful thing. What it does is God takes a broken system, and it is broken, even in, even in the differences I'm going to show you between Near Eastern slavery and, and modern or, or European colonialism, even though they are very different, and you're going to see very different, even then it's a broken system. How do I know it's broken? Well, because in the New Covenant, uh, it's going to get redefined again. Jesus is going to talk about uh, merely the roles and how you glorify God, whether you're a master or a slave in Roman society. But Paul's going to deal with a runaway slave named Philemon and send him back and say, hey, he comes back to you no longer a slave, he's a brother. Meaning treat him like a brother because, uh, because brotherhood is for, and he even says I'm sending back to you forever as a brother. Meaning this, one day when we stand before the Lord in glory, there's not going to be slavery. No man will be another man's property. By the way, that's in the book of the covenant. 21 talks about if another man is your property. God acknowledging there's a broken system in play. What God's going to begin to do in the book of the covenant is bring a redemptive trajectory to a very broken institution that existed worldwide. He's going to show Israel how to use that institution, broken as it is, in a way that separates them from all of society and that he's going to be preeminently interested in protecting the rights of the slaves. Understand? Ultimately, he's going to get rid of it. Ultimately, God will errat everything that we see, every, every command God gives in the book of the covenant, which is about protecting the oppressed and the enslaved and the refugee and the orphan and the unborn and the widow, everything God's going to go, it's all going to be eradicated one day around his throne. So, so we know this is a broken system because God will deal with it. He will rid the earth of it. But in the meantime, the first thing he does is say, let me show you how to live within that broken system in a way that glorifies me. Okay, just start there. Now, what's the difference? Well, Near Eastern slavery, very different than colonialism. Colonialism, you guys know what that is. That is a, a, a militarily uh, powerful people or nation looking at a nation that is weaker in number or weaker in technology or weaker in military and saying, gosh, how could we conquer and then enslave and exploit that weakness in order to serve us uh, as a privileged group? Uh, that's, that's, that's the kind of exploitation of American colonialism that we, that we look at our past and, and wince at, as we should. 
Now, understand, the Bible in this passage is not condoning that. This isn't a verse that you go, oh, God was okay with that. This isn't what that was talking about at all. This is Near Eastern slavery. Your Bible might even use the word servant because, because, there's, because, because uh, there is a much softer appeal or effect of what it was to be a servant slave than it was to be a conquered, oppressed people slave. All right, now, here was the idea. In the Near East, uh, the slaves were educated. Let's just start there. They, the master longed to educate the slaves. The, the, here's what he longed to do. He longed to figure out who's good at what, what are their gifts, educate, set up a hierarchy where um, there's management, and even where management becomes leadership, becomes authority, becomes wealthy, can provide for his family, even to the extent that a slave was able to, if, it, uh, if he uh, was able to um, make enough money and have enough influence, he could buy his own freedom and then begin to, and, and I'm going to use the word that would be incredibly countercultural, even empower others to come and work for him until they win their freedom. So immediately you have a whole shift. This wasn't merely a conquer, oppress, exploit. This was a, uh, an, uh, even, and listen, there was still evils existing in slavery as there always, because men are involved and men are evil and men are crooked. Okay, but there was an opportunity within slavery. In fact, most of the time in Near East slavery, it was voluntary, that you voluntarily enslaved yourself. Why did you do it? There was actually 11 reasons um, in my studies that, that uh, I found, but just a couple of the biggest ones was you were either in a big debt, you had huge debt that you couldn't pay. So you enslaved yourself to pay off your debt. Or that you were existing at the poverty line or right below it and you had a family and your family wasn't eating. And instead of being a day laborer, day laborer was actually the lowest man on the totem pole. It was lower than slave. Because day laborer, you had no idea where your next meal was coming from. Slave, you allowed yourself, you volunteered yourself to be someone else's property so that you knew where your next meals were coming from, so that you received education, so that you had a chance to advance yourself, literally better yourself in the life of your family. Now, I'm not trying to make it all sound like roses. It was a broken system that men exploited. The first thing God says is, hey, when you buy a Hebrew slave, like when you engage in this system that exists uh, in a sin-stained, fallen world where there is poverty, there is brokenness, there is large debt that people can't pay off, there, there are these factors, there are reasons why people would voluntarily become another man's property, which is not um, a godly or good thing. When you do that, you're going to treat them differently than any other culture in the world. So already, Near East slavery, very different than colonialism. You with me? Then, take Near East slavery, God says, we're going to do something different than that. We're going to do this. First thing he says is, um, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. So, what's God doing? Broken system of slavery, beginning of a redemptive trajectory. If there's somebody that voluntarily enslaves yourself, he becomes a slave because he has to. Maybe it's even generational. Maybe you grew up that way. Uh, here's what you're going to do. New rule, new law for your society. Every six years, you've got to release all the slaves. In Deuteronomy, uh, God's going to add to this. Moses, when they release them, they also, the master has to provide material wealth. So much so that the slave that's been released has stability so that he won't have to re-enter the system as a slave again. So look what God's doing. First thing God's doing is saying, okay, in, 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 in among my people, in my community, who are the most likely people to be taken advantage of, abused, and oppressed, and exploited? The slaves. They're so vulnerable. They, 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 they've become another man's property, oftentimes voluntarily, because they felt like they had to. God says, first thing, we're going to protect them. Uh, give seven provisions in these first 11 verses. Six of them protect the slave. One of them protects the master. Who's God most interested in? 
Slave. Say it. Slave. Understand. Understand. God is moving redemptively in a broken system for the defending the needy, protecting those who can't protect themselves. That's just where the book of the covenant starts. Remember I said, I wish I could rename the sermon. I would have called it the God of the brokenhearted. Anyone who's a slave in the night is somebody who's brokenhearted. Now, at least that's where they start. There, there's someone who is in, in, a, in such a sad state that they have had to become another man's property, it, whether it was against their will or of their will because of their broken circumstance, and God's looking down saying, I know where you are. Let me tell you what we're going to do. Six years, and there's going to be a year of jubilee. We're going to set you free with material blessing so that hopefully you can get out of this system with it, that you might have the dignity that I want you to have as an image bearer and a human and that you might be free to live and to lead and then to be a blessing for others. That's good. That's not a proof text for slavery. Do you understand? That's altogether different than that. Not even talking about the same thing. And even within what it's talking about, God's elevating and saying, here's, here's the beginning of the end of slavery. Okay. And by the way, you get Joseph. He was a slave. You get Daniel. Slave. Both those men became the, most, the second most powerful man in the world in their time. So you couldn't look at a slave, and it wasn't a socioeconomic class. It wasn't just an oppressed people. There were slaves that were rich. There were slaves that were the second most powerful man in the world. Okay, so understand, very different thing altogether. And God takes a very different thing and says, we're going to, start, we're going to begin to shape this so that you guys, even a, uh, you guys take a system that's broken, and it begins to be used for my purposes and for my glory and for my people's good. That's what God's always doing. Okay, that's where he starts. And I gotta make one more point on this one through 11. Um, verse five, if a slave plainly says, so that he's been released, and he plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children that were born during my days as a slave. I love my master so much, I don't wanna go free. Now again, we go, wait, what? Why that do I? Yeah, that doesn't make any sense if you're thinking of European colonialism. It, it, this, is not, this is not a far-fetched thing in that day. Because again, there's a master who has loved you, who has provided for you, has helped you figure out your skills. You have uh, worked hard in, in uh, your education and the betterment of your circumstance and provided for your family. And you, you have a love relationship with your master, so much so that you say, I love my master, I don't want to go free. Like, I want to serve this master. His loving kindness has won me over to the extent I want to volunteer my life in servitude for him forever. And here's what you do. Master uh, shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and the master shall bore his ear through. That's like piercing his ear with an awl, like a, like a hammer to nail. And he shall be his slave forever. Now, you guys familiar at all with the concept of someone uh, being totally free, like legitimately free, and then voluntarily enslaving themselves to their master because of his loving kindness forever? That's, hopefully that sounds real familiar. Hopefully you're going, yeah, yeah, that's kind of like me and Jesus. I hope so. Like this idea is the idea of being a bond servant. That, that's what these people were. They, they voluntarily enslaved themselves to a master that was so loving, so kind. I don't want to be free if freedom means away. I want to be with you serving my life for your purposes. Paul calls himself over and over in the New Testament. He introduces himself in almost every letter saying, I'm a bond servant of Christ. He's drawing from the book of the covenant. He says, that best describes what my relationship is with Jesus Christ. That's the relationship of a Christian, one who's been totally set free, legitimately free, redeemed, and in our freedom, 
We don't run towards rebellion. In our freedom, we run towards intimacy. We run towards, we say, I, I want to surrender myself and my newfound freedom for the cause of my master who has been so loving and so good and who has freed me, and that is Christ. All right. Good start to the book of the covenant. All I want you to get so far is the first thing God does. And boy, wouldn't we miss the whole thing? That's why I was afraid to preach a whole sermon on slavery because really the point here is the book of the covenant, the first application of the Ten Commandments in your society deals with how you treat the least of these. And by the way, that thing will continue. Look at 16, verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him. You know what that's called? We just had a missions moment on it. That's called human trafficking. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him. By the way, that's a lot closer to European colonialism than what we were talking about in verse 1. Are you with me? If you're going to try to use the Bible to proof text, well, you got to be honest. Because in 16, he says something that's a whole lot more like what happened in the days of the African slave trade. And here's God's verdict on that. That man shall be put to death. Does that sound like God condoning what was going on in that time? No. That's God saying if you want, if you want to steal a man and sell him, uh, here's the deal. In a community that's supposed to be set apart and holy unto God, that that's not something we're going to slowly work in and redeem. Like, that's got to be done. That guy's got to be dead for this community to be consecrated unto me. We can't have that. We won't. God won't have that. By the way, in Amos chapter 1, uh, along that same line, uh, God raised up a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel, Amos. Amos calls out two, two other uh, countries, Gaza and Tyre. And, and God said through Amos, here's your problem. You are kidnapping, you are taking whole communities in their weakness, and you are enslaving them and then selling them off to Edom. Now, that again looks a lot like uh, European colonialism. That does. And God said to, th- to that, he said, I will use my people and I will judge you and I will rid the earth of you. Wow. Un, do, you, do you understand there's a difference here? Okay. So don't, don't, please don't take to the streets and proof text slavery with Exodus 21.1. That's the first win of today's message. Okay. The bigger win is understand God's heart for the people of Israel. If you want to know how to love your neighbor, God starts with the least of these. He starts with those who are slaves. Starts with those who are being trafficked. Now, God's going to continue. Watch where he goes. Verse 22. And I know I'm skipping around. You can fill in the gaps and look at it through the same grid. Verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 22, when men strive together, uh, that means contend, that means fight. There's a fight breaks out, and they hit a pregnant woman. So this is immediately a tragic story that happens. Why is God bringing up such a, such a poignant, specific example? Well, because it's really important to him. So that her children come out. So her, her, she's pregnant, and her child or children come out prematurely. If there's no harm, the one who hit her shall be fined is the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he pays as the judges determine. But if there's harm to the baby that's born prematurely, so who's God interested in the rights of right now? The unborn. To, to God, there is a life in the womb. And if that life has to come out prematurely and is harmed, then here's the deal. There'll be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, strife for strife. God's making a point. The The... The consequence will, will, the punishment will match the crime. This is, this is such another, so much of the book of the covenant is proof texted wrongly. And, and, and so the eye for an eye, two for two is used as a, as a verse that warrants me taking revenge. God said it, eye for an eye. Yeah, to a specific generation where a pregnant woman was hit and had an 
a, a, a child and the child was harmed, to that extent, you ought to be harmed if your life in that day a part of that community. So that has nothing to do with uh, warranting you wanting to take revenge. In the New Testament covenant, we're said forgive uh, uh, seven times 77. Like uh, the idea is perfect, whole, forgiveness because you first have been forgiven. This has nothing to do with justifying our revenge. This says in that day, God's serious about protecting the slave and the trafficked and the unborn. That's what we've got so far. Are y'all seeing this? Okay, track with me. If you keep going, uh, chapter 22, go to 16. If a man seduces a virgin... All right, do you, do you see a theme? There's another one who is a young woman who is vulnerable. She can be taken advantage of. Well, here's a man that does that, seduces a virgin. Can you believe that young men would uh, seek to sleep with young women uh, prior to marriage in that day? It was an ugly day. <laughs> if a man sedu- seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and he lies with her, okay, What's, what's God's heart there? What's God's heart for marriage? What's God's heart for the vulnerable young woman who has been slept with? Uh, you know, whether that was because he seduced her or whether it was against her will altogether, which Deuteronomy will talk about. Well, he shall give the bride price and make her his wife. So, so young men, if you sleep with her, you marry her. Now, here was the idea, and this again, this is a society where there was a lot of, God made concessions, there was polygamy, there was different things going on, but here, here's the deal. If you are going to take advantage, God says, no, you're not, I'm not going to let you take advantage. If you're going to do that, then the rest of her life, you'll be responsible for her welfare. You will sacrifice your life to provide for her if you're going to take advantage of her. That's a pretty good law. How, what would that do to our sexual immorality? What would that do to our, our premarital sex? Well, that is, by the way, you, some of you men are going, I wonder what that bride price is. I wonder if I can afford it. Because by the way, you know what it says? If the father utterly refuses him, if I'm dad, and I don't have a daughter, I don't know exactly what this feels like, but if I was dad, some guy takes advantage of my daughter, and, and now he has to pay me the price, and he has to marry her, unless, I'm thankful for this provision, God says, unless the dad utterly refuses to give him to the knucklehead. <laughs> if I'm like, no, 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 you can give me the money, but she's not going to you. Then that's, the dad gets to do that. She, he has to pay the bride price, no bride. Okay, so it couldn't be used manipulatively as a young man to get a gal for his wife either. Boy, God really protected the weak and the vulnerable here, didn't he? Bride price, men, five years of your salary. Some of y'all make about 37 bucks a year. You're like, yeah, goodbye. But if that was the case, if that was the case, the dad was able to determine a fair price with a judge, and you became, back to verse 1, a slave. You'll be protected, but you're going to be a slave. Do you understand What's God serious about? Don't, don't take a law and go, okay, now, so I gotta do this. I gotta figure out how to, no. Understand what God's doing. If I'm gonna apply the 10 commandments immediately in that society, the first thing he does is come through and start protecting those who otherwise can't protect themselves. Those who are most marginalized. Those who are most often oppressed. Those who are taken advantage of by men in their evil. God says, I'm gonna put a law that everyone can see, that no one can play a trump card no no judge can determine that this is wrong and it's going to protect the rights of the least of these god's heart for the brokenhearted look at verse uh, 21 you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him who are we talking about now the foreigner the immigrant the refugee God says, here's, here's, don't wrong any one of them. 
Now, again, new covenant, we're going to get a whole other standard. Uh, by, by the way, so much of this, so much of this, so much of the book of the covenant is saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't oppress, don't harm, uh, don't take advantage of, uh, don't neglect. And the new covenant, you know what we get? Love your neighbor as yourself. And by the way, uh, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor, Jesus? Anyone in need. What does it mean to love anyone in need as I love myself? Now, that can't be serious, right? No more serious than the Son of God, not considering equality with God, something to be grasped, but making himself nothing, taking on human nature, becoming in human likeness, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. No more serious than that. That is a God who became a slave so that we could be free. That's God who said, I'll be a refugee so that you can have a citizenship in heaven. That's God saying, I'll live in poverty so that you can bask in the riches of the grace of God for all eternity. That's saying, God saying, I'll be every single one of the undervalued, oppressed, enslaved, abused. I'll be all this. I'll take the curse. I'll take it on me. So that you can be redeemed and dwell with God. Now, one day that'll happen perfectly. Today, he dwells in you. And what's our heart as the redeemed? I hadn't made it through the text yet, but we see God just heart-breaking for the least of these. We see Jesus gave himself. You know, what the, you know what the verse right before that passage of humiliation, Philippians 2 says? It says, so you then should have the same mind as was found in Christ Jesus. That's the mind that led him to become a slave, a refugee, and one who lived in poverty for you and I. And it says you should consider the lives of others more significant than yourself. This is no longer just, hey, make sure you don't hit the pregnant woman and you can avoid the cost. This is going, man, my heart's supposed to do what God's heart does when I see the brokenness of mankind under the new covenant. It's not merely this little set of laws in this society. It's God's heart where the new covenant people under grace, grace compels us to reveal to the world the love of our God for the least of these. It's much more expansive. It's much broader. It's much more hands-on. We're not trying to avoid the mess. We are running right into the middle of it. To show the hand of God at work through us, his workmanship. Well, look what he says in the next verse, 22. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. I love it. He's not leaving anybody out. Who have we covered here? We covered the slave. We covered the trafficked. Uh, we covered the unborn. We covered the, the virgin, the young woman. We've now covered the sojourner, foreigner, the Refugee, now we're covering the widow, the orphan. Look at God's heart in 23. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will hear their cry. My wrath will burn. How do you get, how do you get, the, how do you get God's blood boiling, if I can use that metaphor? How do you get the wrath of God burning? Neglect the widow and the orphan. Take the weakest, the, the least, the most marginalized, the most easily ignored and forgotten and participate. Ignore them, forget them, mistreat them. You want to see the wrath, boy, you want to see burn, you want to see God's wrath burning? Now listen to me. If you can't see that that's not just a law for Israel, uh, we have James 1.27 if we need it, right? We got, we got the word of apostles 
telling us that pure and undefiled religion is to visit, to care deeply for the widow and the orphan. Like, we, we got, God wasn't gonna leave that one a mystery to us in the new covenant, that we might somehow assume that uh, that's not important anymore. That was just a law to Israel. No, it's, it's in black and white. That's, that's a law in your New Testament. You do that. That's what, it, that's, what, that's what it means to be religious in the purest sense. That, that's how we live out our faith. That's what it ought to look like. It's not just theological. It's not just vertical. It's not just something that happens up here. It's in the way I care for the orphan and the widow. You see this? It's black and white, lest we miss it. But we shouldn't have to get to the black and white of James. We shouldn't have to get to, you know what the next verse says? Uh, 25, if you lend money to any of the people with you who's poor, you thought God forgot the poor, didn't you? He didn't. You shall not be like a money lender and exact interest from him. Was there a problem with exacting interest on a loan? No, it was lawful. This is one of my favorite parts. You know what God does in the book of the covenant? He goes, you're not gonna simply live lawfully anymore. There's gonna be times where you lay down your rights that another might be able to experience the grace and the mercy that I've already given you when I brought you out of Egypt. That, that, that is the essence of the Christian life. That we, a people who redeemed by a God who laid down his rights and took upon the cross for us, that we too would not consider our own lives but others more significant than ourselves and say, how can I lay down even what is rightfully mine that someone else might know the love and freedom and mercy of the gospel? Oh, here's one way, Israel. When there's someone poor, uh, don't charge them interest. But it's my right. Lay down your right. Let them work and have dignity and pay you back, but don't charge them any interest because there's a better way to love your neighbor than even what would be lawfully done. Be unlawful in this sense. Go above what the law requires to show the grace and mercy of God. So Paul uh, writes to Timothy, um, uh, don't be, fo- uh, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, don't get lost in earthly riches. Don't focus on them. Use your riches to share with those in need. But listen, that's just like James and the widow and orphans. That's like uh, Paul talking to Timothy. Uh, we shouldn't have to get, they're black and white. This is, many of these laws are reiterated, but we don't have to even get there. Hopefully, we've already seen the heart of our God. And then we see it again in the flesh when Jesus gets here. And what does he do in Matthew 9? He looks out at the crowds like sheep without a shepherd. And it says, uh, he looked at the harassed and the helpless. Now, well, that gets his blood boiling over here in the book of the covenant. You know what Jesus did? His heart splagnitsomai. It burst wide open with compassion. Has the heart of God for the oppressed and the marginalized and the needy and the abused and the outskirts, has it changed? Oh, no, it's just more vivid. We see it more expressly in Christ who perfectly fulfilled the law. We watch his life and you go, man, he's always with the fringe. He's always loving them. He gravitates towards them. Yes, he's God. That's what God does. So it should be no surprise that the first application of the Ten Commandments is protect the least of these. And here you are as this people. How are we doing as the church and as guardians of the heart of God? How do we do? And we're, we're, we're not a nation state. We're not a politi- political in- entity. We're not a theocracy anymore. We're, we're a foretaste 
of a kingdom to come. Like Jesus inaugurated it, and one day he will fulfill it. And in the middle, the world's supposed to look at us as a foretaste of what's coming in glory. And what's coming in glory is a day where every single human that's ever been exploited or taken advantage of or abused or neglected or ignored, where we all gather around the throne, not by any virtue or any good doing or uh, any ability to do justice, we all gather around the throne merely because of what he's done on our behalf. And we worship together, brothers and sisters, co-heirs of Christ, there's a oneness There's no more sin, there's no more stain of sin, there's no more suffering, there's no more poor, there's no more widow, there's no more orphan, it's gone. Together around the throne. Now, we're supposed to take what's true, the the will of God in heaven, and make it happen on earth. I'm thankful Paul exhorted Timothy to use his riches to share and be generous, but my goodness, if we have to get to that text, we've missed the heart of God. We've completely missed what it means to be under grace, which is supposed to be a far stronger master than the law. The law simply shows us we stink. The law shows us we're sinful, we're needy, we're unrighteous, we'll never make it. Grace compels us to give our lives away because we've been saved in spite of our rebelliousness. You see what God's doing? You get to 23.9, he just reiterates what he's already said exactly, and I want you to see that. In fact, that's why I want you to see it. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You're saying, didn't you already read this verse? Yep. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. God reiterates, he, he bookends a part of the book of the covenant saying, hey, don't forget, you were a sojourner. Do you remember what it, what it was like to be an oppressed people? Well, if you're gonna be wholly set apart for me, you're not simply gonna ignore that there's those oppressed. You're going to, you're gonna get in the middle of that mess as a liberator, as a redeemer, because I've redeemed you. Are you with me? All right, I want to take this all the way to present day. Do do these categories of the least of these still exist? My goodness, there's a whole lot of people in slavery today, specifically in a way of human trafficking. Uh, you You know, today there's 27 million people, more than there's ever been in history, um, enslaved in trafficking, most of whom are being used for sexual, uh, sex trafficking, sexual purposes, 27 million that's the, now, that, that's the reality that the heart of God is breaking for. And the question is, what is the church, are we doing about this? By the way, I, I want to show you this first. I said if I could retitle this, I would title it The God of the Broken Heart. Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Is that apparent in the book of the covenant? In that, like, if there's anything God's doing, he's just coming out swinging. You know how I love your neighbor? We're not going to start with anything that you might consider mainstream. We're not gonna start with how, how you're not lying and how you're not taking advantage. And, no, we're gonna start with the least of these, which are protecting every right that might otherwise be exploited. How are we engaged in this? This is the heart of our Lord, near to the brokenhearted. If we wanna give a New Testament passage where Jesus deals with this, he says, one day I'm gonna separate the sheep and the goats. And to those who are on my right, to those that are gonna enter the kingdom of heaven, look what he says in Matthew 25. He says this, for I, here, here's, here's what we can say to them. I was hungry and you gave me food. By the way, he's gonna hit the marginalized, right? He's gonna hit those in the fringes. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. Here we got poor. I was a stranger, we got the foreigner and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous answer, here's how the righteous answer, I love this. Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? 
When do we see a stranger and welcome you? Or see you naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them in that day. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. It's just an extension of the heart of God. But it's a deepening. It's a proactive. It's not just don't ignore, don't oppress, don't exploit, make sure you protect the rights. It's go engage and tangibly let them know there's a God who loves them because you were just like them. And Jesus became like them. Even taking the curse from them so that they could be redeemed and, uh, and given full benefit and privilege of the sonship of God. Which is not just this, hey, one day you won't suffer. This is in the midst of your suffering. There's, a, there's an abundant life now. There's a joy and a hope in the midst of that many of them don't have. And here we are. Here's, here we are. The church. We get, we get to carry. You know why it's called good? We get to take the good news. This is good news for the brokenhearted. There's a God who loves you. Well, he doesn't just love, it's like he prioritizes you. He deals first with you. Good news. We're not in a religious system that says um, you're like this because you were cursed. And we're not in a religious system that says, man, you're going to have to work extra hard to work off that curse to please a God who is waiting in to, to vindicate his wrath upon you and your sinfulness. Whew, that'd be bad news. Uh, that, that would... Um, Boy, that, that would starve out any, in, any hope that any human has in the difficulty of suffering circumstance on this earth. We got great news. We got news of a God who rescues that we bring to the oppressed and the brokenhearted. And so we have those being trafficked, 27 million. Um, listen, I want to say this, uh, read this this week, that um, we know pornography is a, 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 an evil that is destroying men and women in our society like never before. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. In and of itself, we know of its, of, um, uh, of its sexual immoral nature. We know that it plagues a life. We know that it steals life. We know that it grieves the spirit. We know that it'll destroy you from the inside out. We know it has all kind of consequences. But sometimes we don't make the connection that it has to trafficking. You know, 27 million being trafficked. Do you know that one third of those are being trafficked for the purpose of producing pornography? Now, this is sad. The statistics of men specifically addicted to or enslaved to pornography is not much different, oh, I hate this stat, not much different outside the church is in. Isn't that sad? God said. So, so outside and in, there's this foothold that Satan has in men in our culture, uh, professing Christ and not, that is pornography. And so many men will think, gosh, there's an addiction, but they don't understand the weight of this addiction in in its advocacy for human trafficking, that their addiction is, is lit literally funding the trafficking of innocent victims into sex slavery for the purpose of producing that which feeds their addiction. Now, I don't say that just to shame you men that may be struggling with pornography. I say it to understand the gravity that this isn't something to just think, well, at least it's not affecting anyone else. Oh, but it is. You know, that one day God might give me freedom. Uh, no, I want to tell you, this is, something that to, this is something to fall on your face on in, in repentance. And if you've been struggling with pornography long enough, you already know that it's, it's the enemy steal, killing, and destroying your life. You already know, I don't have to convince you that. You already know you hate it. Most guys addicted to pornography hate pornography. But they're stuck. And so I just, I just want to say, and this is, again, a whole other sermon that's just being mentioned as an application point. Confess it to God and to someone else. And when I say someone else, not just like, not an animal, 
um, not the least intrusive person you know that will most, no, go, you need to go to one of our pastors. You need to go to one of our elders and say, I need to talk to you. I've got an addiction. It's real, and it's, it's affecting not just me, but 27 million others who are being trafficked for the purposes of feeding my addiction, which is ruining my life. Can you help me? And we would love to disciple you through that and ask with you, grieve with you, and ask the Holy Spirit to heal you and meet you. And, with, and by the way, he can God can heal you from anything. You're thinking, man, you don't understand the change. You don't understand how deep the claws are. No, look, I may not, but God does. And I promise you, his death was sufficient even for this. All right, his blood can wash even this clean. He can free you from the guilt and the shame and every aspect of that that seems to be destroying your life. And he can heal you. He can restore that which the locust has eaten. He'll do it. But you gotta start with repentance and confession and coming forward in faith. Okay, are there still poor people today, my goodness. Um, uh, one half of the world is considered poor, making less than $2.50 a day, one half. So I know, I know for us it's weird, we're thinking, I know, I know, I know a guy that's kind of poor. Half the world, 20% of the world lives in what is deemed extreme poverty. That's one in five. We're so immune that we better be careful not to ignore. 22,000 children a day die in starvation. 22,000 a day starving to death? Be careful, don't fall asleep in this. Are there widows? Are there orphans? Every, are there refugees? Do you, do you know that right now there are more people displaced from their homeland than there's ever been in human history? 65 million. 65 million. Oh, let me ask you this. Are there opportunities for us to bleed for what God's bleeding for and get involved redemptively in the mess? Like there's never been before. And so how do you specifically apply this? Let me just give you some things. Number one, ask God to break your heart for what breaks his. Let me just land the plane here. Ask God. Look, because the first thing that needs to happen is, the first thing that has to happen to some of us is to go, you know what, why don't I care more? I've, gotten, I've, I've kind of built my little world and my little castle and my little kingdom and I've got everything just like I like it. And I think it's sad, but it, but it doesn't, it, there's no splagnitzo my in my heart. Well, would you start with asking God to break your heart for what breaks his? And then secondly, as he gives you, and I'm trusting that he will, as he gives you a heart for the least of these, which is his heart, old and new, book of the covenant for, we see it vividly. We just see it in the flesh in Jesus. We see it in the new covenant commands. As he gives you the heart, will you pray for them? Now, I don't say that trivially. I go, that's a good idea. We should remember them at dinner time once a week. I'm saying when you meet Christ face to face in all that you haven't done, in all that I haven't done to serve the least of these, in every opportunity I missed, I'd sure love to have taken advantage of one that is to daily pray that God would intervene in the broken system of our world which treats people with all these abuses and oppresses people and forgets people, ignores people in all the margins, that God would meet them. And he would bring hope and healing and salvation. I'd love to at least go down swinging with that prayer. That's something we can do 
on their behalf. We can labor in prayer. We, we can't help, you can't help everyone. You can't even help that many of them, but you can labor in prayer for all of them. Third, as God, ask God specifically for the chance. So, so pray for the least of these, but ask him, God, will you give me one? Give me a refugee, a widow, an orphan, one in poverty, one being abused or trafficked. Give me one that I can relationally love and invest in and be a tangible representation of your love. Give me one. And as he does it, if you're praying that, I bet he'll do it. Pursue that opportunity. How to pursue it? Next one. Ask God to give you courage to live from faith and not fear so that you might love as Christ has loved you. What I mean by that is I think generally when we start looking at those in extreme poverty in our neighborhoods, we generally drive in the other direction. Uh, when we deal with someone who has been trafficked or abused, we say, Let, let's meet somewhere. I want to counsel with me. I want to kind of help you. I don't want you in my home. Like, I don't know what you're bringing into my home. When we think about a refugee or an immigrant, uh, uh, we immediately go, well, what religion are they? And are, do they, what are they going to do to us? Like, we're every, our just knee-jerk reaction in dealing with each of these categories is, fear, is withdrawal. We start backing up. How can I help them from afar? I just want you to know that God runs to the heat of the battle. First thing we're going to do is deal with all the folks that we don't know how to deal with but that need to be dealt with, that need to know my love. And it's ours to deal with them. And grace is a better master. We're compelled. And so ask for courage. Look, if you're afraid, so am I. Ask God for courage. Give me courage so that I can live from faith and not fear and love these people in the same way Christ has loved me. All right, I'm not sure what number one, but the next one. Share, share the, good, the good news. You know what's so great about sharing the gospel with someone that's in the margin? You know what's so great? Look at this. You get to share that God is God of the brokenhearted. Show them Psalm 34, 18. It's so good. Like, you want to find people that are receptive to the gospel? Let them know there's a God who cares intimately and specifically. He is close to them. He is close to those who are questioning spirit. And then let them know that he's a sympathetic savior. What do you mean? What do you mean? He, he's not a theologian in an ivory tower. Like, Jesus Christ was a slave, a refugee, and in poverty that we might be sons and daughters of the king. Explain to them what that means, that we might have a heavenly home that we long for, that we might be rich in relationship with God as brothers and sisters and co-heirs with Christ for all drink. What an incredible message for those on the fringes. How poignant would that application be? And next one. Don't forget that we too are sojourners. God said it twice. I figured if he said it twice, I better make it an application point. I think the idea is this. We don't go out as heroes of our own narrative. I'm not going out to save the world. I go out as one who has been rescued. Like God is on a rescue mission. He rescued me and he gave me. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 said. Uh, all this is from Christ who reconciled you to God through him and gave you the ministry of reconciliation that you might be his ambassador. I go out as a herald of the good news. I go out as an ambassador of Christ because our God is the hero. And I go out as one rescued to share with others who need to be rescued how and where to find salvation in Christ by grace through faith. We were sojourners. In fact, in a great sense, we still are. First Peter says, you're a, you're a sojourner. You're passing through this world. Don't get too attached. You're an elect exile. 
long for your heavenly citizenship to come to fruition and work in the shadow lands to bring it to light. Okay, last. Keep your fork. This, I've shared this before, but that's just a way of saying when my grandmother at the ranch, when she would come by and whisper as I was putting back my meat and vegetables, as she'd whisper, hey, keep your fork. You know what that meant? That meant uh, something really good, something even better was coming. You hold on to that fork because you don't want to miss out on dessert. Can I tell you, we're living in the second greatest time in human history. Pretty awesome. Like, to be in the old covenant was not near as, as, as uh, beautiful as living today. In light of Christ, inaugurating his kingdom, Christ in the flesh, Christ who left us a helper, being literally uh, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, that he makes a home, that our bodies are temples of God, that he lives alive in us, so that even if you took away my Bible, I'd have the, the, the Holy Spirit inside of me, teaching me to do the things that are, to love the least of these the way he does. We live in a day of greater light, of more revelation, but it's not the best day. Can we all just take a deep breath and thank God that there's a better day coming? When all of these evils that are a result from the fall, that God begins to give a redemptive trajectory in right here in the Old Covenant, that all one day will be obliterated, that literally around his throne, no, there will not be any trafficking in glory. There won't be any poverty in glory. There won't be any abused, vulnerable young women in glory. There won't be any dangers for the unborn in glory. There won't be any refugee that's unloved or unwanted in glory. Isn't this unbelievable? Like one day we'll see the redemptive trajectory of God fulfilled when Christ culminates, when he comes back to rule and to reign, and we rule and reign with him. Today, C.S. Lewis said, it's the shadow lands. It's a foretaste. Everything is shadows. We are to... Uh, we are to visibly demonstrate what will one day be true in how we live as the church. But keep your fork, because the best is yet to come. There's a day when all of this will be, all, all of the law and all of the caring for these it'll all one day be obsolete. So Hebrews says, the law is obsolete in the new covenant. Foretaste of what's coming. There will be no more. Praise be to God. Father, we thank you that... Um, that you were and are and always will be a God who is the God of the brokenhearted. That we know what it is to be crushed in spirit. We're not just talking about those who don't have money today. We're just talking to those who have been trafficked in an incredibly evil human institution. Uh, we're, we're not just talking about others. We hear your word, Lord, and we know that you care about even us in our brokenheartedness. And yet, Lord, there, there still are the least of these in the margins of our society experienced daily uh, being ignored and oppressed. And God, I, I pray that you would burden us with a desire to be your hands and feet in an entirely new way, just seeing your heart so clearly, Old and New Testament, that you let us expose your love for those least of these around us, that, that, that we, would, we would literally be able to bring them good news and see salvation go forth in the name of Jesus Christ. God, let that just be the driving desire of our heart as your sons and daughters, as co-heirs of the throne, as your ambassadors. Thank you for the undeserved privilege of ministry. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, just